Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, professor of strategy and the War Room podcast editor here at the Army War College. Thanks for joining us today. On today's episode, we continue our series on great captains in military history. And today we're going to venture into new territory and territory that might be, frankly, a bit controversial. But that's one of the things we aim to do here at War Room, to bring you content that's informative and entertaining, but also provocative. So today, my guest is Colonel Eric Anderson, and he's here to make his case that Osama bin Laden should be considered a great captain of the post-industrial, post-Cold War world. Eric is a United States Army officer and a faculty member at the U.S. Army War College in the Department of Military Strategy, Plans, and Operations. And he also is a co-facilitator of the War College elective course, Ride with the Great Captains. So welcome to the War Room, Eric. Hey, thanks for ha- having me today, Jackie. I really appreciate it. Good. So we're going we're gonna to start this conversation with an easy question, which is how did you start thinking about Osama bin Laden, um, who is obviously one of the great sort of villains in the American imagination, certainly for a current generation of, of army officers and even a little bit before that, uh, as a quote-unquote great captain? So in our ride with the great captains elective here at the Army War College, uh, we examine generalship largely from an American military experience lens. And the course requires students to select the past military leader from any era or any nation uh, and argue why he or she deserves consideration as a great captain. And over the years, we've had some great proposals. Uh, you know, I've really learned uh, a lot about some uh, successful military leaders that uh, maybe I hadn't paid attention to before. But after a few years of the program, I noticed no one really ever selected a commander later than the 1990 Gulf War. And it made me begin to wonder, in, in the post-industrial age, post-Cold War era, has there been a military leader who impacted the conduct of warfare the way Napoleon and the ones that he you know, extolled did? Um, and as I reflected on that question, I thought about what's impacted my time in uniform over the last 25 years. And even though I studied Soviet-era tactics in the basic and uh, captain's career courses and fought the Krasnovians multiple times (laughs) at the National Training Center, uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union, the U.S. military has largely found itself engaged in military operations uh, against non-state actors around the globe, which pointed me toward bin Laden. And like you mentioned, I I acknowledge that for many military professionals, regardless of their nationality, but particularly those from Western countries, Um, they might find it difficult to consider this position without bias, uh, given their past and ongoing operations against violent extremist organizations. Let's talk for just a moment about the implications of the, of the case you just made, um, which is some people might, who are, who are listening might be a little uneasy with this, uh, identification, even if Osama bin Laden is efficient and effective, uh, in terms of leadership, it might be difficult to sort of separate moral judgment about the ideology he espouses or espoused, about the methods that he employed, um, 
because it seems at some level that the moniker great captain uh, implies admiration. How would you respond to that sort of critique? In no way, shape or form do I condone, you know, that ideology or those kinds of things. You know, armed conflict is is a deadly business. And as military professionals, I think we have a moral obligation to examine um, what works and what doesn't work, uh, especially if it's if it's against us or if we mm-hmm. are struggling. I mean, we've been fighting we've been fighting in Afghanistan for 18 years. Why was Bin Laden successful? Why haven't we been successful? And I think that's that's worth it. I mean, if you, at the end of the day, we spent, as we mentioned before, trillions of dollars of of dollars, and let alone the countless of lives radically changed uh, as a result of military operations. Yeah, so I, I think it's it's worth looking at. You know, how did Bin Laden? Adapt. I mean, how did he? How did, how did he survive, and how did he? How has his organization continued to survive? And I would argue it's because they're continually adapting to the environment that's presented to mm-hmm. them and ebbing and flowing uh, as they're able. So, if we want to make the argument that Osama bin Laden should be considered as part of the great captains, the sort of pantheon of great military leaders in history, what are the things that make you? maybe think that the great captain moniker uh, applies? Yep. Uh, you know, that's a great question. As I looked at Bin Laden's activities going back to the Soviet-Afghan War of the 80s through his death in, in 2011, three major areas stuck out to me. First, his ability to mobilize a force and sustain that mobilization over time. His understanding of the operational environment and continual adaptation of his operational approach to secure an asymmetrical advantage. And finally, how his activities within these first two areas changed the character of war, giving rise to non-state actors on a global stage in a way that they, they hadn't been uh, operating uh, prior to the fall of the, of the Soviet Union. You know, but before we dig in, into that a little bit deeper, I, I think we might, it's worth taking a second to take a step back and, uh, and think about what actually drove bin Laden's actions in the first place. Mm-hmm. Bin Laden sought, I, from my perspective, three major outcomes. Uh, first, to end the infl- infidel influence and presence in the Middle East, first by the Soviets and then later the West at large, mainly led by the United States, and end to what he perceived as apostate regimes in the Middle, Middle East, most notably Saudi Arabia, uh, that were propped up by the U.S., and then ultimately a Sharia-based government ruling uh, over all the Islamic peoples. Mm-hmm. So we have clear political objectives. Then once you start putting sort of resources to that, and this is going to be obviously a very long conflict, you're, we get to your sort of first category, which is mobilization and then sustainment of that mobilization over time. So can you talk to us a little bit about the specifics that we might look at in that instance? The first is the impact of the August 1793 uh, Committee on Public Safety's levy on mass, actually, believe it or not, mm-hmm. during the Napoleonic era, radically changed uh, the view uh, of war and warfare in, in Napoleon's time. Uh, and, and reflecting on that, Clausewitz uh, noted that critical link between an emotional attachment to an idea and then the action subsequently taken to achieve that idea. How strong or the intensity of that emotional attachment 
then will directly drive the people's willingness to sacrifice in magnitude and mm-hmm. duration for that. So I think that's that's one key aspect. And then as you know, ideas are powerful, but they remain useless unless one re- organizes and mobilizes the necessary resources to translate them into tangible action. So, so two books uh, kind of drove my thinking uh, a little bit further in this case. First was uh, Malcolm Gladwell's 2000 book, The Tipping Point, which looks at how a novel idea, trend, or behavior becomes a social phenomenon and nearly impossible to reverse. And then Eric Hoffer's 1951 book, The True Believer, which examines what drives individuals to join mass movements and subsequently willingly sacrifice themselves for the cause. And so as I look at bin Laden, you know, he goes to uh, Afghanistan for the first time in, uh, in 1980 while he's still a college student. Uh, and he goes as a request of the head of Saudi intelligence to kind of find out what's going on. Remember, the, the, the Soviets invaded in December of 1979. And they were invading to basically prop up the pro-Marxist, pro-Soviet uh, regime. Bin Laden initially goes, and I'll use Gladwell, some Gladwell terminology here. I think he goes to Afghanistan and he, and he finds himself as a maven. Maven, under Gladwell's terminology, is someone who's, who's got resources, uh, whether it's knowledge or information or funding or, or whatever it is. And, and they willingly give that to an, another person. And so Bin Laden comes. He's, he's not your average Saudi. He's the son of a, a multi-million dollar uh, construction company owner who has significant ties to the Saudi regime. And so he comes and, and he shares his expertise. He, he's not known for any uh, mm-hmm. battlefield exploits per se uh, in Afghanistan. He's actually more known in Afghanistan for his ability to recognize what's going on and, and, um, and then get after it with activity. So Shortly after he arrives, he starts in, engaging his father's construction company and his own experiences operating in that construction company, building cave complexes, tunnel complexes. Right. He's got a whole network of, of folks, and this would go then to Gladwell's next category of key people that's important in these tipping point movement moments is um, a connector. He's connected to a ton of people. And so he he knows a lot of folks. He's drawing a lot of folks uh, from across the Islamic world to come participate in the the jihad movement against the Soviet invaders. And he's frustrated when when he gets there. And he, and he, there's no organization of who's actually coming, who's going, where mm-hmm. they are. Uh, I, I read a particular uh, anecdote where. Afghan, uh, excuse me, Islamic moms would call up looking for their wayward sons, and they couldn't find him. And so he starts logging a database, figure out who's there, and figuring who, out what who's doing, there yeah. and what they're doing, and 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 how can we get them where they need to go, and all of those things. And so, so you see these connections that he's drawing and making, uh, and in it's starting to of, rationalize a movement. It's starting to organize in right, different that, ways. That, so that's the key thing. It organizes. And so he does that pretty much for all of the, the Soviet-Afghan war. He returns back to Saudi Arabia in, in 1990 with, with uh, about well, you know the core group of, of foreign fighters, the Arab Afghans, or the Afghan Arabs, excuse me, who, who participated, who came from afar to fight uh, as part of the Mujahideen. 
And uh, right about the same time he returns home, Saddam Hussein decides it's a good idea to invade Kuwait. Um, Bin Laden approaches the King Fahd and, and offers the services of 100,000 Afghan Arabs with all this combat experience in, uh, in Afghanistan, and he's actually rebuffed uh, by the king. And, and that, that kind of puts him off a little bit. Uh, and that kind of starts Bin Laden on a journey um, where he now really starts to rail against the, the Saud regime and what he sees, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the U.S. Uh, the sort of corrupting as, influence. Exactly. Um, and so he, 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 even though he, he stays in Saudi Arabia for, the, for you know, 1990, he's actually kicked out in 92 is, is when the, the Saudi regime can no longer take his continual verbal attacks. And, oh, by the way, he's, his group which has traveled with him and that he is still connected to because mm -hmm. of this massive database. I mean, depending on what source you look at, anywhere from 8,000 to 35,000 foreign fighters right. you know, participated in the, in the Soviet war. So he brings knowledge with him. He continues to develop that knowledge during war. He, during the Soviet-Afghan war, he takes that knowledge and those networks that he develops back and then those those are sustained through the through the end of of his life right well yeah so even though there's there's not an an al qaeda presence per se in the early 90s his op his he is supporting through his financial networks through his uh, um, afghan arab uh, mm -hmm. fighter network uh islamic movements in the balkans Right. In, in, uh, and keeping these long-term political goals sort of in, in mind. Exactly. Are there things that bin Laden does to sustain that over, over 30 years? So Gladwell talks about the three key individuals. You've got the mavens who have, are the information people or the resource people. You have the connectors who do what you say, connect people. Think about... The, the person you know that when you ask them a question or if they know somebody, they go, I, I know a guy. Right. That's a, that's he a knows a guy. Right. And then you have a salesman who is the one that actually carries and communicates sure. the message. So Bin Laden, I think, fulfills each one of those, but he also meets other people at different stages. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, when he first enters into Afghanistan, he's not the salesman for this global right. jihadi he movement. He eventually becomes that, right? And becomes a sort of voice in the face right, right. in e some ways. E exactly, exactly. And so you see him make the transition over that 30-year sure. span um, where he's going less and less away from being the maven connector kind of person to being the voice, being the mm -hmm. salesman. And I think this actually leads us to your second sort of category because uh, you talked a little bit about his evolution over time that he, he changes as well. And if I'm recalling correctly, your second sort of category or thing to look at is the idea of adaptation and continual exploitation of, of asymmetry. Right. So, so again, a couple, couple of military theorists going to throw them out there for a second. You got, you got Clausewitz and Napoleon. They're looking for the battle, the big battle mass, your force against the opponent force at the decisive place in time. You obviously want a, position of advantage and seek that battle of annihilation to win the war. 
But on the on the other hand, you've got Sun Tzu who says to to basically defeat your enemy without fighting is the acme of skill, uh, and, and that's kind of echoed by I'd like to you know tie to Mao Mao Zedong, who talks about recognizes that for revolutionary movements and arguably Bin Laden's violent extremist organization Al Qaeda is a revolutionary movement. It's seeking to overthrow the status quo. Uh, in the Middle East, you know, they have to progress through stages. It, it, the strategic defense, the preparation for the uh, counteroffensive, and then the actual counteroffensive itself. And it, and if you don't, if you try to progress through those too rapidly, mm -hmm. you, your, your movement is going to get crushed. Because at the beginning, the government owns... And is stronger. You're yeah, right. And has all of the ability, uh, the resources of the state. So I think those are, are, are relevant in this discussion of, of a continual adaptation of your, of your approach. And so if you, look at, if you look at the different, I'll call them for lack of a better term, phases of bin Laden's military career, what, what happens in Afghanistan? Well, what's happening in Afghanistan is you have guerrilla fighters, uh, Mujahideen, the Afghan Arabs, are largely targeting and fighting the uh, Soviet military and the and and the Afghan army that supports them. So it's largely against a conventional force and a and a paramilitary right. force. Um, but then when you see him transition back to when the, when the Soviet war is over, he, he goes to uh, back to Saudi Arabia, gets kicked out of Saudi Arabia, ends up in Sudan. So now he's in Sudan, and, and what kind of activities is he looking at? Well, is he supporting these uh, Islamic movements in the Balkans? He's, he's, again, doing it by proxy. He's not going. He's mm -hmm. sending finances. He's maybe sending a couple of fighters as trainers or whatever, but, but he's not actively engaged. He's trying to pursue the jihadist agenda through proxies based on what's going on in the, in the circumstances there. Um, then you see him change again in the, in the early 90s. Uh, he actually starts engaging in some bombing technique or bombing tactics, the first of which is a December 1992 bomb attack on the Gold Mahor Hotel in Aden. And that's actually the first Al-Qaeda attempt to directly target U.S. military personnel. The point there being is that's a dumb bomb. There's no one looking at right. it. There, it's you go in, you set it, timer. And whatever go, happens, whatever happens happens. Yeah. You don't know the necessary effect. You have he has a, he has a little bit greater effect uh, with the Kobar Towers bombing right. in Saudi Arabia. But it's again, it's a dumb bomb. Um, now then, transition. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, one other one is the initial plan to and the actual bombing of the World Trade Center uh, with the truck bomb in, in it was 1993 right February 1993 yeah so again that's a truck bomb yeah. and but we but we already were seeing the evolution of tactics and the adaptation to different tactical environments different operational environments different even in some cases different strategic environments trying different things trying to again exploit that that asymmetry right and, and i realize i'm i'm talking about an operational approach but i'm giving tactical examples but i think it i think it's indicative of his ability to understand and recognize 
Hey, I can do this. Mm -hmm. I can't do this. I can try this. I can do this. Hey, I had these dumb bombs. They're not effective. It's not till then you get to the the U.S. embassy bombings in uh, Tanzania and Nairobi in 1998. That's the first suicide attack that that they that that Al Qaeda starts employing. And oh, by the way, now we're directly targeting deliberately mm-hmm. U.S. facilities. And unlike the previous attack in 1992, which was targeted at the U.S. Marines, Bin Laden and Al Qaeda, they're targeting soft targets. They're targeting the civilians. They're targeting the embassies. They're targeting the U.S. presence. Yeah, so we see this sort of ratcheting up of the target set, different um, methods employed as well. And so if we fast forward sort of even even more into the to the most recent iterations of the fight against Osama bin Laden, how do we see that same adaptation and exploitation? I, I think you do, because so we, we know the September 11th attacks happened. That's clearly asymmetric that we weren't looking at at all. Right. But but after that, now when when the U.S. Coal and the and the coalition goes into Afghanistan in December of 2001, uh, they first assault Tora Bora and then they follow on with Operation Anaconda. Both of those operations, there's anywhere from 300 to 1,000 Al-Qaeda and Taliban fighters. They stay. They fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those, those are a couple of weeks-long military operations. Um, and ultimately, they're not successful. And, and arguably, you can see that then that's another adaptation. Hey, this didn't work. <laughs> We need to now go back to what has worked in the past, guerrilla operations or other terrorist operations and those kind of things. And that falls, and that actually, I think, aligns very nicely with, with Mao's thoughts on the different stages of, of Well, that you can go warfare. back and forth and you can ratchet up and down and it can be vertical and horizontal sort of escalation and de-escalation as required. Um, so let's go to the third sort of category, which, like you said, is related to the first two. But the claim would be that Osama bin Laden is is, fundam- is actually able to change the character of war in this post-Cold War, post-industrial age, which is a, a, that's a pretty big claim that, that you're making. It is. And one of the one I think uh, the characteristics I think we really need to take into consideration, and it's worth it's worth examining, and I and I'm still thinking through it myself. Is was it's Osama bin Laden? Did he experience as much success as he did because of the time and place and the conditions? And would he be equally successful in another era? Hmm. And, and so, look, what happened? What's going on in this time? Well, he, he goes to Afghanistan, he fights the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union retreats and then collapses. And so he comes away from that, I think, saying, hey, I can poke these big superpowers. If this I, might work. Right. If I, if I extend it enough, they'll collapse. They will economically implode and we'll win because that's what he wants to do. He wants to get the, get the West out, then he can take down the, the apostate governments in the Middle East. And so after the Soviet Union collapses, the U.S. doesn't have another peer adversary till uh, about 2014 when we see China's rise come and Russia's rise come up. That We expended all these resources uh, going after things that 
I don't know if they were really important to our national interests. But getting back to, so that's, but I think that's, that's important to understand for the context right. of the time. The other thing is you see this huge rise in technology that we didn't, didn't see before in terms of globalization, the, the ability to need an internet connection, a satellite dish, and I can communicate across the globe instantly. After the Afghan Arabs disperse from Afghanistan, where are they going? Mm-hmm. They're going back to their homes. Well, how do you communicate with them? Wow, the internet and the and cell phones and, and the technology and, yeah. gives, gives you the ability to almost near instantaneous communications with dispersed people. Yeah, you don't have to have them right there, and I think that's really important. Exactly, and I so I think so. There are some other conditions that I think exist too. Is up until the rise of Al Qaeda most Western governments are looking at terrorist organizations as a criminal problem. And and you don't see a lot of information sharing. Uh, And so I think that he takes advantage of this lower barrier of entry into armed conflict. Now it's much, much easier to enter into that. Uh, Some AK-47s and explosive devices are relatively cheap. Well, if you look at, uh, I think if I remember correctly, Bin Laden said it for $500,000, yeah. he killed over 3,000 right. Americans. Um, I saw a report yesterday um, that the U.S. and the Western powers are on track to spend, I think, $6.5 trillion mm-hmm. dollars on... on terror or counterterrorism operations up since September 11th. So just in terms of efficiencies and we might say return on investment, he's getting a lot. Yeah. It's huge pennies on the dollar. Yeah. What I think then, what, how does that take it back to the changing character of war? Uh, I think that we've been able to see and, and our potential, near-peer or peer state actor adversaries have been able to see that uh, technology matters, but not how the U.S. US military machine Not is. in the same, like, R&D acquisitions of new systems. Right, but cyber has right. presented a, a, a new opportunity to provide an asymmetrical advantage to prevent the United States from achieving its strategic objectives... Um, you can find a whole lot of ways to do that sure. at, at, at not a whole lot of money. Yeah. So Sparky, thanks so much for coming today. I think this has been a really fascinating and challenging conversation. I know I've learned a lot and I've thought about things in a new way. I think one of the things I really appreciate is that you've asked us to hold in tension two ideas. First, that Osama bin Laden is at once um, a villain. He's an enemy of the United States, someone whom we should not and do not admire. Uh, But at the same time, Osama bin Laden is um, a pivotal figure in military and strategic terms, and he was remarkably adept at shaping and adapting to his environment. So I want to thank you for helping us start a difficult conversation, and thank you for joining me here today on A Better Peace. Again, thanks, Jackie. I really appreciated your time. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. 
Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.